back to another episode of the Photographer Mindset Podcast. I'm your host, Seth Macy. This episode, I'm going to be talking with Zach Mills. We're going to get into uh, the new wildlife collective organization that he's formed with some awesome photographers, many who have been on this show. Zach is very well spoken. He's got an interesting background, a lot of intelligent things to say, and really a good person to be steering the ship towards uh, sustainability and conservation and tying that in with photography. Uh, He was actually the uh, person who helped me find, uh, well, not find, he found them. He took me right to the uh, elks that I could photograph my first elk in uh, Canmore around Banff area in Canada. Um, just an all-around wholesome dude, and I really hope you enjoy this episode. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so to me, I think ethics in photography is, and I think most people will agree with this, there's a large gray area, right? So I'm interested, I guess, to hear if you agree with that. And maybe some of the things that are black and white and maybe some of the things that are gray or are maybe leaning to one side on the gray scale. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, I have a slightly different view. I like to characterize, uh, I like to characterize wildlife ethics as black and mostly black and white with a few shades of gray in the sense that there are many principles and codes that you should follow uh, irrespective of the species. But there are exceptions that we can talk about. You know, when we think about baiting, for example, there's pretty strong consensus that we should not bait top predators out in the world because a baited wildlife, a fed bear, fed wolf, fed other top predator, unfortunately, we've learned becomes a dead animal. That's just sort of how it works now as bears or wolves or other top predators become conditioned to human food, it leads to a more aggressive behavior and inevitably conservation authorities will step in to have to address the situation. But that's very different than having a bird feeder in your backyard, which can mm-hmm. also be considered as baiting. So overall, I think that when you're out in nature, you should be operating from a principle of first, do no harm. Second, be respectful And third, put yourself in the animal's position. So you're always thinking about what your overall impact is when you're out in nature. And if you approach it from that mindset, you will not, I hope you won't, walk up to a bear and threaten both yourself and the safety and put it in a very precarious position, depending upon what it would react to, that bear may have to pay fatal consequences. So... Mm. It's not easy, Seth, because there is no code of wildlife ethics that exists, that's standardized, that's globally known. Do you think it's possible to make one? I do think it's possible. And in fact, is that what you're working on? We are starting to think through how we can approach this. How can we codify human behavior Mm -hmm. so that's respectful of wildlife while Mm -hmm. at the same time allowing people to enjoy it and still be wildlife photographers? Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of different principles that could come in. There are certain exceptions. We mentioned the bird feeder. There are more, such as for people who like to do shark photography. I am not one of them. But what I've heard is it's almost impossible to photograph great white sharks unless there's some chum that's left out for them. And even then, it's it's very difficult. Now, is that influencing shark behavior in a negative way? I'm not an expert. I do recognize that there is a difference here. There is a nuance that we need to understand and appreciate. 
And we do need to drill down on these nuances because context matters, individual situations matter, the wildlife subject matters, and different species, different populations of wildlife subjects you can interact with very differently depending upon the season and where they're located. For example, you can have a very different experience with a coastal brown bear up in Alaska, which is concerned predominantly with fishing for salmon in a certain location versus a brown bear in the interior or a grizzly, which does not have that food source and you could not get nearly as close to from a safety perspective. So all these issues matter and they're relevant because they do pop up in various ways. So the challenge becomes, how do you codify a set of wildlife ethics uh, that are principled, that are objective, and that you could adhere to while still accepting that there are certain gray areas out there? It's not easy, but that's part of the challenge. And that's a journey that we've embarked upon. Right. I think the big, I think there's a few things that I'm thinking about as you're saying this. I think one is the biggest challenge is eliminating gray areas, right? Um, and just reducing those, like you said, to a point where there are none left. Um, easier said than done. I think the other thing too, is you got two, you have two types of people, right? You have people who have no idea the impact um, that their actions are having. And I, I actually like it when I prefer that to the other one that I'm going to speak of in a minute because that person or that individual can be educated and then they can move forward with their life learning from that and, you know, ceasing that action or whatever was unethical, right? But then you have the people who just don't care where it's about the shot. And that's more of a problem is getting people to care. And this can be even outside of, of ethics. It could be, you know, getting someone to care about climate change or getting someone to care about, uh, uh, single use plastic is the, I think the root, one of the real roots is how do you get people who are not naturally empathetic to start becoming empathetic and to start, you know, pondering, Hmm, what consequence does this, this, or, you know, what consequence does this thing I'm about to do have in the long run? Um, you know, and so, so how do you think we can start to get people beyond simply educating to, to care or to shift in, in paradigm? Seth, you raised a question that can apply to human behavior throughout almost any walk of life. And, and the challenge is it's not an easy one, um, because, there are people who are not educated, as you say, and maybe supplying information will change behavior. But there are a lot of times, and this has been documented in so many ways, where knowing better does not change the actual human behavior. Right, right. I think the strategy going forward, and it's it's not an easy one to say the least, but I see it here every day because I'm in sort of a wildlife and nature hotspot where I live. Yeah, you're in Canmore that, near near Banff and, and a few hours away from Jasper in Canada, just so everyone knows who isn't familiar with you. That's right. I'm in the Canadian Rockies, and mm-hmm. it's one of the few places on the planet where we coexist with both bears and wolves. Of course, that coexistence is threatened by increased development pressure, but for the moment, you could possibly see a wolf downtown. Uh, sorry, not a wolf. You could possibly see a bear downtown. The wolves tend to migrate through more at night. But what I see is there's a lot of people using wildlife corridors where I live, which are supposed to be no-go areas. And 
it's become a point of contention with our town council. They're so frustrated that individuals continue to use these spaces reserved for wildlife and use them for their own recreation or for their own individual pursuits, including photography. The challenge is, in my mind, so many of these places are just not marked. Um, You need to remind people as much as possible that things they should not do. And having that front and center can influence a behavior at that exact moment. For example, in these wildlife corridors, there should be red tape and giant signs that say, do not enter. You are disturbing wildlife. There is a fine. Um, so ha- having that reminder over and over again, because people may know something, but then they may forget it or conveniently forget it or just not think of it in the moment. These are all very possible. So having more warnings up in place, I think, are a good idea. But also, and this is where, where the real challenge comes, um, it's in the messaging and it's in the enforcement. So simply stating brush your teeth is not necessarily going to lead someone to brush their teeth every night. But if you come up with a clever alternative message, that may be more effective. So instead of saying, you know, don't enter a wildlife corridor or don't feed the animal, if you had a sign or messaging that perhaps said, if you feed wildlife, it will be killed because of you. These are certain behavioral nuances that may have more impact. Of course, it's an Mm -hmm. area of greater research. But I do think that we need to be more clever with the messaging to encourage behavioral change. And then at a certain extent, there needs to be some degree of enforcement, some penalties so that people, if they are going to violate the rules and they clearly stated what they are, that there is some penalty. And I was just going to say, yeah, because people people will, people will, um, you know, the second you threaten their bank account, people back off, you know, (laughs) like in, in Ontario, I don't know how it was some of the, some of the rules at West, but like in Ontario, they've consistently continued to raise texting and driving fines to the point where it's like almost, (laughs) almost like a month's salary. If you get caught texting and driving and they've seen those numbers go down. Um, it's an interesting balance between, economics and environmental issues that I think are sort of intertwined. And it's sad that, um, you know, you need to often threaten people's financial positions in order to receive a certain outcome. But also I think some of the issues that, that lie in be it, I guess, conservation or other environmental issues is that is money, right? how the relationship between economics and environmental studies is, is they go, they go hand in hand. And I mean, you're someone with a background, maybe not in this specific uh, area, but you're someone who you, you know, you worked for the world bank, correct? So, I mean, you know how both the environmental side and the economic side of, of issues of this proportion. Seth, here's the interesting thing. There's been a few studies done that have shown that being ex- having nature accessible to people is extremely highly valued. Even planting mm-hmm. one additional tree in your neighborhood leads to life satisfaction outcomes that they've estimated to be worth almost $10,000. There's a huge uh, intrinsic benefit to just being in nature, being close to nature Absolutely. in terms of our overall wellness. However, 
when we look around and we see where the money is actually spent by governments around the world, there's often a gap between money that's donated to protecting wild spaces, conserving what you have, protecting wildlife. Unfortunately, a lot of that burden is transferred over to the individual or the taxpayer. It's more meant to be a user fee, which in my mind is sort of self-defeating because as a society, studies consistently, consistently show that we value nature so highly, but yet we don't see that in policy action. And what are we left with? We're get left with fewer wild spaces, more encroachment, more development upon what is currently, you know, pristine wilderness. Uh, climate change is accelerating. These are the big questions of our time. And in terms of what people value and where people travel and the experiences they like, nature is almost always at the top of the list. Yet mm -hmm. we see policies that don't align with that. And that's the challenge that we face. Right. I think one of humanity's biggest downfalls is our short-sightedness. Um, I think it's, it's, there's just, if there is anything wrong with the human operating system, if you had to pick one thing, I think that we're so hardwired to be short-sighted as a collective, right? Could you imagine if everyone came from the perspective of um, long-term sustainability, even financially, Think about that, like people who rack up credit card debt, like to the point where they become insolvent. Like, just think about if everyone was long term sighted, what kind of world we would live in. It would be a better world, but the world is complex and complicated, and there's so much wealth and equity. You have, I forget the exact number, but there's less than 100 people in the world who own more than 50% of the world's wealth. Uh, crazy. Them. Yeah, it's just crazy. So then, as a consequence, you have a lot of the overall decision-making is done by the people with the most power. So that is a, a great challenge. We've never, I don't think we've lived in a more unequal time over the course of human history, if you look at wealth concentration. And unless people become enlightened, uh, enlightened billionaires, which there are some cases that want to protect and preserve the environment for future generations. Unfortunately, we see this short-sightedness where there is this intrinsic desire among some people to just continuously generate wealth, develop more wealth. And unfortunately, nature is often lost or forgotten in that pursuit. Yeah. I mean, I always make the argument with people or not even an argument. I just always think of it this way is that what's the point of having all this wealth if there's nowhere left to live, right? Like someday this house of cards is all going to come down. I mean, we're slowly getting to a point where, you know, the world metaphorically is on fire. Right. Um, but so we're kind of, I, I kind of want to hear a little bit about your, um, your history with the World Bank and just so people have a little bit more of a background who don't know you, about you, and just how that shaped kind of your view of the world because you've lived a, a, at this point, in my opinion, a pretty interesting life, um, right? And you you resigned from that position at one point and now you're doing um, photography is taking up most of your day and this new passion of yours, the Wildlife Collective. I'd just kind of like to hear a little bit about your role when you're at the World Bank and how that trans, what that entailed, how it shaped your view of the world and how you are where you are now, like your journey, if, if as you will. Great question. And it's directly relevant for what I'm working on now because it shaped me in so many ways. So when I was 25, fresh out of grad school, I started working at the World Bank, which is a branch of the United Nations, 
whose mission objective is to alleviate poverty around the world. And my role there, I spent about a decade, was a governance and budgeting expert. So I traveled around the world advising governments on how to improve their budgeting practices for their citizens, for the benefit of their citizens. And that meant more transparent and accountable government, more alignment between citizen desires and overall government policies, and also evaluating governments based upon their performance, monitoring and evaluation, and checking to see if their systems, their budgeting practices were fully operational, transparent, functioning to meet the objectives of responding to their citizens. When this type of work took me all over the world, when I resigned from this position uh, in a few years ago, I was managing or co-managing projects in Myanmar, Serbia, Zambia, Zimbabwe, and Kenya, and traveling more than six months over the year internationally to work directly with high-level government officials. And it was interesting, but challenging work. When you think about a budget, it's economics-driven, but it's also driven by politics, sociology, Mm -hmm. history, psychology, everything all jumbled into one. So people would often ask me, well, I don't understand the connection to photography. But in my mind, at least, there is a strong connection parallel in certain ways. My work was both very technical analytical, but also subjective and dependent upon tactics about how you create a situation that leads to the best possible outcome. And so much of my work was reading the room, understanding human behavior and motivation from my counterparts, from people within my organization about how we can work together and achieve the best outcome if certain preferences are revealed. And I feel that with photography, at least, There's so much, too, of reading the situation. There's an analytical side, but there's also the more subjective artistic side. So as things went on, I became a bit frustrated that I was not having the intended impact that I signed up for. There were a lot of internal bureaucracy and politics to navigate. And from my point of view, I was more interested in having tangible developmental positive outcomes. Mm -hmm. And it reached a point where I felt that I could part ways instead of retiring in 2051 and try something new. And what was unique about my situation was uh, I just resigned. A lot of people would resign to another job in a similar field, but I made a complete life change. And we moved back to Canada. We now live in the mountains. We have a young family. I haven't looked back. Quality of life has improved exponentially. And now I can still work in that former field, take all my experience and knowledge and apply it to conservation. But I should just say that over the years, I had always been in love with nature and travel, and I grew more and more interested in photography. So it wasn't cold turkey, I'm going to do photography now. It was that I've been building my photography skills over the years, and I reached a place where I felt confident that I could pursue it more in a full-time capacity. Right. Um, yeah. And, and there's a lot to unpack there. And, you know, one of the things that comes up a lot on this podcast and there's a, I feel like there's a ton of people listening who it's terrifying to leave something they're so familiar with, even when they're unfulfilled or even when things aren't going the way they had planned. Where do you think that ability to shift gears comes from? Um, psychologically or what have you. I mean, because that's a big decision to leave a position um, 
that is regarded highly of, I would probably say, um, you know, where is your mind at during that process? I'm going to make a nice connection here. Sure. So there's a book which changed how I thought about life. That book is called Mindset. It's by Stanford psychologist. And to boil it down into very simplistic summary, the thesis was there are two types of mindsets. One is fixed. One is growth. Fixed means that you're born, you think you have certain level of intelligence, certain skill set, and that no matter how hard you try, you will never get better or to the point where you want to get to. On the other hand, there is a growth mindset where you see every failure as a learning exercise. And you know that the only way to grow is to change and challenge yourself. So that's it in a nutshell. But since I read that book, I've been so mindful of the growth mindset where I know that if I want to continue to grow and evolve, change is necessary because being uncomfortable is the only way to learn and experience new things. And you'll come out on the better end of it if you're willing to accept defeat, failure, whatever you call it, as a learning opportunity and keep pushing yourself to keep improving. So it was with that background that I was unafraid to make this, you know, defining life change, uh, left behind a very cushy job that was, as you say, highly regarded to something now where I work for myself and with others at a more pursuit that I feel much better about. And it's been a challenge. Uh, there's been a lot of learning steps along the way, but I wouldn't trade this journey for anything. Love that. And I'm going to ask you this because this is a question I throw out frequently to, you know, guests who are on the show and their answers are all different, but kind of the same, if that makes sense. So the question I'm going to ask you is what fulfills you as a human being? You know, like what fulfills you? What keeps you, I just, I mean, just stoked on being alive. You know, what is it for you? There are many things. I'm a very positive outlook type of person, but if I could boil it down, family is so important to me. I have two young kids and a wonderful congrats wife. On your, congrats on your newest uh, child. Thank you. Yeah, she's almost three months now, and I get inspiration from them every day because I want to leave the world a better place for them. And I know that so many things that I love, being outside in nature, traveling to all these amazing spots, that unless I work at it, there's a real risk They may never be able to go there. They may no longer exist. Elephants may be gone. Gorillas may be gone. So I draw inspiration from them. But I just also draw inspiration from so many other amazing people that I know of who are in my life that are doing good work. And I sort of approach every day with the mindset, let's do something productive. Let's work towards something, no matter if it's all day or just a moment. Let's Mm -hmm. have a set goal and try Mm -hmm. and use our time, no matter what you're doing, to advance towards that goal. Absolutely. I love that. Because to me, I say this all the time after the person has given their answer, like to me, fulfillment is progress, right? And that's exactly what you've said at the the latter end of your sentence, working towards something, accomplishing something. It doesn't need to be something grandiose, you know? It can be something so simple. But I love that you said that. And I just always love hammering that point home with listeners is that, Fulfillment is progress. When you're working towards something, when you have nothing in your crosshairs, that's when life gets mundane and that's when you, you know, things start falling through the cracks. And that's when, you know, it's really time to pull your pants up, you know? 
Hundred percent. And the interesting thing is, what you view as progress changes over time. So I'm living a very different life than I would have envisioned, you know, ten or fifteen years ago. But to me, it's that ability to change and also change what you identify as fulfillment、mm-hmm. and progress that really matters. Yeah, I was going to say progress is entirely subjective. It could be losing two pounds. It could be reading a chapter of a book. It could be photographing an animal that you've never photographed before. It could be doing your second or third podcast. Who knows, right?、Um, but so we've covered a lot of cool stuff now, and I really don't want to delay anymore in getting into your、um, your baby, your other non-human baby, the Wildlife Collective. So this is fourteen months in the working. You launched it what about a month or two ago? That's right. Let- Everyone who is not familiar、um, know what the purpose it serves is. I guess that's to keep using the word fulfill. What purpose does it serve to fulfill,、um, and just what it's all about, what it hopes to achieve? Yes, thank you. So the Wildlife Collective, you can think about it as around fourteen months, but in many ways, it's the culmination of my entire life. Absolutely. Where, yeah, now. My focus is and is with is on conservation, and the ma- most amazing thing is we are a collective of nine individuals with such diverse, amazing, talented people who I draw inspiration from every day, and we're all united by our desire to promote conservation. We are wildlife photographers at heart; it's our job, it's our profession, but we know that unless we actually Are active in promoting conservation. Some of the animals we love, or the places we love, will no longer exist. This whole idea came together over the proposed Pebble Mine up in Alaska, which would have been the largest copper mine in the world, which、uh, united us because it would have been placed smack in the middle of the most pristine brown bear habitat that a lot of us had visited and、mm-hmm. felt so connected to. And there were a bunch of other reasons it would have disrupted the largest salmon run in the world from Bristol Bay, and there were many, many people involved in fighting this proposed pebble mine. I played such a small, insignificant role. But what was interesting and a turning point was that one of the other members of the Wildlife Collective challenged me to speak up, and my whole life to this point, my whole career had been in diplomacy. Where I was inculcated with never, you know, take a strong side, always be objective and diplomatic. But with this challenge, I actually spent, you know, countless hours putting together this post about why I needed to speak up and say my opposition to the proposed Pebble Mine. And it was right around this time where I read a great quote that has influenced me in my whole conservation thinking, and it was that. Silence is deemed as acceptance. So what that means is, you can be against something, but if you don't speak up to everyone else looking around at you, they'll think you don't have any objection. You seem on board. You're giving your tacit approval. So by forcing me to speak up and then recognizing everyone else speaking up, this idea germinated in my mind that together. If we work together, we could amplify our voice for conservation, much more so than any individual action. And the Pebble Mine, thankfully, was defeated. Again, I played such a small, insignificant role. One of the other members of the Wildlife Collective, Drew Hamilton, he played a much larger role, and there were other、mm-hmm. organizations as well.、Uh, 
Um, but it showed to me that the power of working together with like-minded individuals can make a difference and where you can take a good idea and transform it into a great idea. And that was the inception of the Wildlife Collective, where our mission now is to promote conservation through everything that we do. We are getting involved in a bunch of different conservation campaigns. We're asking the tough questions about what does it mean to promote conservation? How can we change our behavior? What can we do to improve and keep these wild spaces wild? And at the same time, we're binded by our love of wildlife photography. So we promote wildlife photography, we teach it, but everything we do is geared towards conservation. And where can people find that? Um... Very easy. www.thewildlifecollective.com. And there's still so much more than what I would like to have up on the website. As was referenced, it's been a long journey to get to public mm -hmm. launch. And then I've realized now that the official work only gets started. The real work only gets started. So there's still a lot more that we're working on across a variety of different things. We have so many great ideas, and now it's just a matter upon directing energy, focus and attention, and acting upon them. But we hope to bring a lot of exciting things to a variety of audiences very soon. Yeah, man, all awesome stuff. And for people, you were referencing the Pebble Mine um, and Drew Hamilton as one of the people steering the ship there. He was actually on the show. So people who are new to the podcast, if they've jumped a few episodes, they can go back and listen to the Pebble Mine uh, episode with Drew. It tells you the entire backstory. And this was actually before it got canceled. So it's it would be an interesting listen. Obviously, that fight will still be ongoing for a while. But for now, I think uh, it was a big win for everyone uh, to to have that project vetoed for now. Um, you did say something kind of interesting uh, at the very beginning about the Wildlife Collective and the awesome group of t uh, photographers that are part of the collective is that, you know, you want these spaces and these animals that you've seen to be, you know, around for essentially forever. And the part that I was thinking about was that, you know, people like yourself and, and Brooke and Brooke Little Bear and Dave Sanford and all the rest of the crew, you guys have all seen these places firsthand, right? These animals firsthand. And I was just thinking to myself, I was having a weird, uh, a weird uh, Seth thought um, and just kind of going off the rails in my own head that change really happens when people are directly impacted in first person. Now, obviously, it's not attainable for every person in the world to be able to go to some of these places and see some of these animals. And that's one of the beauties of art, right? Is that people can live vicariously through their favorite photographers and see their favorite places and be influenced by what they're about. But I was just thinking about, I, I, I there was another person, sorry to plug the show twice, but there's another person on this show who works at Facebook virtual reality labs, who is also a photographer who, uh, if you're interested in that, go back and listen to that. He was talking about the future of social media, and how Facebook and Instagram are working to institute virtual reality. And it just got my wheels turning thinking, wouldn't it be amazing if we could get some of these people um, who maybe aren't in a financial situation or social situation to be able to go and see some of these places and animals, wouldn't it be able, awesome to bring them there? 
with VR. Like I really think something like that would be incredibly amazing so that you can have that firsthand impact. You know, like when you go to the mountains for the first time, the Rockies, I know you live there, so it might be somewhat normalized. But like when I went there for the first time, man, I had to pick my jaw up off the floor like the entire time. Right. And those are the moments and those are the memories that make people who have experienced that want to savor and um, maintain those places in a pristine condition forever. So I am totally on a tangent, but it just got me thinking about that because I know that virtual reality is coming in the future for social media. And I think it could play a big role, maybe in some conservation and bringing people to the forefront of these places you're trying to protect. I certainly hope so. And there's an old saying that goes, seeing is believing. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of truth in that, that once you see something, you often become more emotionally invested in seeing the outcome. And part of our role is as photographers, as you mentioned, is using our art, the visual art, to translate this experience to people who may never see a polar bear or may never see a lion or another species out there. But if we can make it more accessible, make these wild spaces that are, you know, very much off the beaten path and hard to get to or very costly, more accessible to a wider range of audiences, I think that could only lead to better outcomes. It would show how precarious the situation is, how much climate change is affecting the habitat and the behavior. And it would help people really visualize all these statistics we keep hearing about in the news to something much more relatable. So I'm hopeful for that outcome with VR. We'll have to see what the future has in store. (laughs) Yeah, man. I've absolutely loved having you on. You are incredibly well-spoken. People need to take speaking lessons from you if they're looking to brush up. Um, It's been a lot of fun, Zach. And I've actually, you're one of the guests I've actually met, right? You showed me to the elk party that uh, the local elk uh, threw for me in Canmore. <laughs> if you remember that, it was a homecoming for me. It was awesome. But I just got to say for everyone listening um, that you're just, if if it, if you haven't already spoken for yourself, you're an incredible photographer. You're an amazing dude. And you're working on some really awesome things. So very proud of you and what you have for the future, dude. Thank you so much. Anytime you want to photograph elk, I'll just make a few calls and I'll arrange <laughs> everything for you. And if I could leave uh, maybe Absolutely. one note... Yeah, I just want to say, you know, conservation is so important and there's a lot that can be done. And if you're passionate, that's great. But we need to find ways to translate passion into action. And if you're interested, please check out the wildlife photography. Yes. And there's one piece of photography advice I want to leave behind, too, that another quote it's by a Spanish painter, believe it or not, that uh, from about 100 years ago that stays with me. And that is. Would you rather look at a photo every day for a week and never think of it again? Or look at a photo for a moment and think of it every day for the rest of your life? And that's the art that I'm trying to create that can move people. And that's what we're trying to do at the Wildlife Collective. So we promote conservation, but we use our art to connect with people and make them feel more connected to the natural world. Awesome, Zach. Yes, everybody, make sure to check out both the Instagram and the website, wildlifecollective.com and wildlife collect, at wildlifecollective underscore, if I'm correct, uh, for some awesome stuff. And if you're interested in learning more about this kind of stuff or how you can get even just like involved, um, it's people are free to message you, yeah? 100%. We 
We love engaging with anybody who's interested in conservation, or even if you're not, we're open to any dialogue. So please get in touch. We will write you back. We will have a conversation. And uh, yeah. Thanks, everyone, for listening to another episode of the Dr. Mindset Podcast. Be sure to check out the Wildlife Collective uh, with Zach and his group. They've got an amazing thing going on. I'm sure that they're going to make waves in the conservation realm. Until next time, everyone, go get shooting, go get editing, and stay focused. <laughs>